We have been asked to mark number 272, and we're certainly happy to do that, and always look forward to singing these beautiful hymns of praise and encouragement. And even as we do that, we are able to lift our voices in unison and pronounce some of the grandest opportunities and blessings indeed. This evening, as you may have noted in the bulletin perhaps earlier or even on the wall behind me presently, we're going to be giving some consideration tonight to a rather well-known episode contained in the pages of the Word of God. But it's an episode that's not just intriguing and not just interesting, but one is filled with lessons and filled with particulars that can be a tremendous consideration for you and for me tonight. It has to do with the brass serpent. A moment ago, Brother Wayne read from Numbers 21 where we encountered that episode and what we shall do this evening is not only reflect upon that particular chapter, but on a number of others that in fact cause us to see how that episode is used in the Word of God. As far as the introduction to tonight's lesson, you and I shall shortly discover, if we had forgotten it, that the brass serpent is mentioned in both the Old and the New Testament. And I'm sure like you, it's always fascinating how that, a matter that occurred at a particular point in ancient history nonetheless reappeared thousands of years later and did so in a way that had meaning and fruition and something that carried a great deal of understanding relative to God's providential development through the character of time and space. That'll be the case with regard to the brass serpent. You'll notice near the middle of that slide, we shall in fact, interestingly enough, not only see a snake on a pole, but we will also see in it the redemptive work of Christ, and we'll also see in it characteristics of proper behavior, even before God today. So without any further delay, why don't we at least rehearse a bit about the details and specifics of the text itself, as was noted in Numbers 21, and then we will proceed to observe a few lessons that might be drawn from that particular passage. I've used a word near the beginning of that slide. I think it's a fitting term. This turned out to be a monumental development. Though upon reading through the book of Numbers, maybe it seems very minute and maybe it seems almost insignificant. But as you and I shall shortly find, it wasn't to be so. In fact, you'll notice that Numbers chapter 20, in fact, contained many events that were rather great in the history of Israel. It's in this chapter that Moses lost his older sister Miriam, and his older brother Aaron. Both of their deaths are recorded in this chapter. You and I also appreciate in this chapter, isn't it fascinating that Moses himself made a dramatic error? It was in this chapter that he struck the rock. And maybe among the matters we so quickly remember concerning that event, God, of course, gave him orders with respect to bringing water out of that rock. And yet... As Moses took the attention and the credit for himself, as well as those, of course, that were with him, ultimately he lost his opportunity to go into the land of Canaan. I believe we'd all agree that means Numbers chapter 20 was a great chapter of loss for Moses. His brother, his sister, his opportunity for entrance to Canaan, it was a great chapter of loss for him. And yet in the midst of it, we're going to find that matters are even going to become worse, at least in some regards. I've asked you to notice one more thing. It's in this chapter, of course, that with the death of Aaron, there needed to be a high priest, and hence his son Eleazar was appointed as the successor. 
as the one that would be the next high priest. Perhaps in light of those things, isn't it then significant as you turn the page, if I may say it proverbially, and look at the opening verse of chapter number 21? Because in that verse and those that follow, we continue our consideration of the people's movement from Egypt to Canaan. They were destined for a land flowing with milk and honey. They were destined, of course, to make it to that place to which they had looked with such great intrigue. But yet, that journey was fraught with some challenges and difficulties, not the least of which are some of those mentioned here. You may notice in particular in verse number 4 of Numbers 21, And they, that's the people of Israel, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So on their journey, they had to go around the land of Edom, those descendants of Esau. And we quickly are asked to observe that it's not that they were merely discouraged. They were much discouraged. They had arrived at a point of consideration both in mind and perhaps even in body as well to where they were discouraged. The next verse will elaborate somewhat when it says, The people spake against God and against Moses. And note what they ask Him. Wherefore hast have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread." The discouragement, it seems, surrounded the physical circumstances of their placement. Moses, you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread here, there's no water, and we're tired of this manna. Don't you have anything else on the menu besides this? In light of those kind of attitudes and those kind of presentations, did you notice as a part of that they spoke against God they levied part of this at the very feet, if you please, of the God of heaven. It's your fault. And Moses, you're right there in a part of it too. As they spake against God and spake against Moses, you'll notice that they, in fact, used an interesting phrase in reference to the manna. That which, of course, is otherwise in the Bible in Psalm 78 called angel's food. And yet here... The text says, our soul loatheth this. They hated it. If at least we're to believe what they said, they said, we just can't stand this anymore. Now, you and I know from other passages, and what a rather lovely consideration it was that this was given to them. Tasty, light, sweet. It just had so many wonderful characteristics. And yet they, in essence, looked upon it far less and far differently than what the greatness of the blessing ought to have been seen. It is for that reason on the slide, now notice what happened in verse number 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Poisonous snakes. They came into the camp, and again, the children of Israel were, were a rather large number. And as these came into the camp, we noticed that not just a few, but many of the Israelites died as a result of these poisonous snakes, the bites thereof. 
Verses 7 through 9 then close at least our discussion of that passage by saying, Therefore, the people had reached a conclusion in light of their previous complaining and observations, and in light now of the poisonous snakes that were so many among their midst. It says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. They reached a conclusion. It's a sin to speak against God. It's a sin, you see, to accuse Him of those things, to, in fact, pay no attention to the greatness of His blessings, and to accuse Him of the rather unpleasant things that may come our way. Isn't it still true? God hasn't promised us a lap of luxury in this life. But He has demanded that we be faithful and appreciate that what good things we do have are from Him. In light of this, though, they made another observation. Not only were they guilty of sin... They said, pray unto the Lord that He may take away the serpents from us. The very people who, seemingly not long before, were not thankful for the manna, now besought the very one who had sinned it to take away the snakes. Isn't that a great turn of events? They ought to have been thankful for the manna, of course, but now they at least did recognize God gave that. And they seemingly were understanding He could take away the snakes as well or at least make appropriate provisions that death might not reign supreme. And so in verse 8, God has a remedy. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so after many had passed away, many had died, we now appreciate they did turn to God and beseech His aid in this matter. And God gave Moses these orders. You make, in essence, a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And if any man is bitten, he may look upon it. And when he does, he shall live. All of that brings us then to a rehearsal of the actual events. What lessons might there be in it for us? And what kinds of observations could be of benefit to you and to me in our walk with the Lord? May I offer just a few? I thought it wise first to make mention of what I will entitle the judgment of God. The judgment of God is seen so quickly, so remarkably. There is very little separation, isn't there, between the events of their complaining and the events of their failure to appreciate the magnitude of their blessings and the appearance of the fiery serpents. In fact, you may notice in verse number 5, they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, and in the very next verse, the poisonous snakes appear. It's a very important thing to think with care, as you'll notice on that slide to think with great care before we too rashly accuse God. Now, men have often, I suppose, done that throughout history, and we have many examples of it in the Bible. Those who had the nerve, in fact, to lay at the feet of God a particular circumstance or set of events, blaming Him for that which took place. You may recall, though, that on those occasions, quite often valiant lessons were rather quickly learned. I think we should be quick to remember one of the comments our Savior made. Do you recall in John chapter 9 that there was a man who, in fact, was born blind? 
And there were those who asked Jesus, did this man sin or did his parents? In their mind, there had to be a cause for this. And it surely could not have been anything that other than what could be laid at the feet of either the parents or the man himself. Jesus was quick to say he hadn't sinned, neither is his parents. But rather that the magnitude of God's glory might be seen in him. We ought to do well to remember things quite like that. Your circumstances in mind and life may not always be filled with the pleasantness that we would wish. But yet the need for faithfulness never runs out. The requirement of God's blessedness in terms of what positions we do offer and what place we do occupy surely are great indeed. In regard to this man, in regard to the characteristics of this fire, these poisonous snakes, notice again that God sent them. They didn't just randomly appear. Now, I would be quick to point out a few passages in the Word of God, things which are indeed somewhat intriguing. It seems as if the way in which these fiery serpents are mentioned in the Word of God, that they were somewhat native to this part of the world. In other words, these kind of snakes were naturally there, but who directed them to come to the camp of Israel? God did. The God of heaven, it seems, brought them, herded the snakes, if you please, into the place He wanted them to go. I say it that way because in Deuteronomy 8.15, the fiery serpents are mentioned. Notice there, the children of Israel were somewhat closer to the land of Canaan, and yet there still is historical mention of these snakes. The book of Isaiah mentions them twice. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse number 6, as well as Isaiah 14, verse 29, we find these snakes, and there they're called flying fiery serpents. Now, please don't be misled by the word flying. We're not to imagine snakes that could fly through the air. That's not what the text means. The original word has behind it the sense of darting quickness. Apparently, they could strike very quickly. They had the capacity, the capability to especially render their venom into the victim with quickness. That's what that word means. Not that they could fly through the air, but they could quickly fly and strike with great rapidity their, their target. Again, Isaiah mentions them. Maybe it's intriguing then that here were these poisonous snakes and they were very rapid and quick in their capacity to strike. Maybe that's connected to aggressiveness. At the very least, we can say this. As these snakes came before the people, you'll notice that they bit these people and many of them died. There might be some at this point who would say, well, God's not fair, is He? That He brought about the death of His own people? Isn't that rather uncompassionate? Isn't it rather uncaring? Isn't it rather mean? It's the same God whom they had ignored. It's the same God whom they had chosen to lay the blessings of the manna at the feet of something else and stated they hated it. They had turned their back upon Him in that regard, and God will not tolerate that. He demands our obedience, and if we, of course, claim Him as our Father, we should be dutiful in that. I've asked you to notice in Romans eleven twenty two that there are some attributes of God we mustn't overlook too quickly. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. 
on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. I suppose it's easy to contemplate God's goodness. But that verse reminds us, what about his severity? What about his determination to, in fact, bring judgment upon those who choose to be unfaithful, who choose to, in essence, turn from him? Paul was quick to remind the Roman church, wasn't he? May we never forget God's severity, just as surely as we're quick to remember his goodness. Maybe one last thing would be that extended passage in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm sure that perhaps your mind has already raised to that passage because it too has much to say about the text before us in Numbers 21. I'll not read all of the first nine verses of that chapter, but could I at least turn your attention to a pair of the verses as they appear before us? To that congregation, Paul made some rather direct remarks. You may recall that among those remarks were these, verse number 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Now, in the mind of Paul and in that inspired writing, that's a reference back to the events before us in Numbers 21. And you'll notice Paul said that was used by the God of heaven as an example for us, just like they were destroyed by the serpents. Paul said, you need to learn from their mistakes. Do not do what they did. What is it they did? Paul said, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them did. So they're complaining. They're attributing the blessings they had and failing to appreciate it was a making trial of Christ. Paul said, don't do that. Do not ever allow yourself to reach a point where you make trial of Christ. Don't try to make bargains with Him. If you make trial of Him, you may find yourself in a circumstance not unlike the fiery serpents. Our duty is to in faithfulness and into humility and into sheer servanthood to follow our King and Master. Isn't He King of kings and Lord of lords? Isn't He the one that went to the cross for us? No wonder the Revelation writer John pointed out in Revelation 14.4, Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. That should be our humility as simple sheep. This opening lesson in regard to the judgment of God invites you to consider another one. One I've entitled Serpents and Death. I suppose when you and I think of poisonous snakes, it seems to go hand in hand with the thought of death, doesn't it? Maybe at this point we could at least ponder. Isn't it true that God could have brought His judgment in a variety of ways upon the Hebrews at this time? He could have brought famine. He could have brought an instant disease like He did in other places in the Bible. He could have brought an enemy nation to kill them with swords. But He chose to use poisonous snakes. He chose to use these serpents. Was there a message in that that too carried with it something that they were to appreciate and that perhaps might have at least some lessons for you and me as well? It is for that reason on the slide, could I at least point out, at least for many people, a snake and especially a poisonous one brings rather notable fear, anxiety, 
and a great sense of respect for what that animal can do. And yet throughout the Word of God, we remember what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. Eve gave attention to the serpent. And Eve chose to follow what the serpent suggested. Of course, Adam did as well. Maybe it's fair to say in light of all of that, that here as the serpents were connected to death, many people died. Doesn't it seemingly remind us that you and I too face an old serpent? And the New Testament, in fact, rings with greatness about him. We all know the devil was the one behind the serpent in Eden. And we all know that the devil's behind these eventualities that lead to death spiritually. Is it any wonder then that that old serpent, the devil, that's the way he's referred to in 2 Corinthians 11.3. And that's the way we see him referenced in Revelation 12. You and I too face a serpent that will lead to our death if we'll follow him. If we will give in to him. Is it any wonder that we too need enough wisdom to never turn our back upon the God of heaven, but recognize that only in him... And through faithfulness to Him, shall we be able to be free from the onslaughts of this serpent. Now on the slide, I've asked you to notice that as the serpents are therein described in Numbers 21, again, they're said to be fiery. Maybe again, that has relation to the aggressiveness of them. Perhaps it has relation to the nature of their appearance. We don't know what color they were. Maybe they were a brilliant red. Maybe there were something along that line. At the very least, we know they brought death. I've entitled it again, Serpents and Death. Aren't you so thankful for passages like Revelation 12, 11? In that same chapter that just described our chief enemy, that old devil, the serpent, we are given a fail-proof methodology to make sure that his strike is never lethal to us. It's a three-pronged consideration, a three-pronged attack. It centers on these three things. One, the blood of the Lamb. The blessed and perfect anti-venom, if you please, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But the second attribute, the Word of God. In other words, a faithfulness to that Word no matter what. And finally, being willing to die for His cause. Never turning our back upon Him for any reason at any time. John the Revelator said, If you will abide by those three, you will undoubtedly and with certainty triumph over that old serpent. And His bite, His, his strike will in no wise be able to cause you the challenge or difficulty of spiritual death. So tonight, you and I, of course, will remain true to the blood of the Lamb, the Word of the Lord, and a conviction and a determination to follow the Lamb no matter what. One last thing on that slide. In 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God came that He might destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Master came to this planet was to put in place those things destructive of the means of that old serpent, the devil, and through Jesus, of course, we enjoy great victory. Lesson number three, the mechanism of salvation. Maybe I could have entitled it the mechanism of deliverance. At the very least, let's perhaps appreciate it like this. 
We don't know how many of these serpents were in the camp of Israel. It wouldn't have taken very many, of course, with about that lethal to bring about great death. This much we do know, much people of Israel died. Notice how they were, however, saved. How were they delivered? Moses petitioned God. God didn't give him some kind of liquid antivenom. God did not tell him, you have everybody to pray. That wasn't the remedy. God didn't tell Moses, you have every one of them bow and kneel and say a certain statement. That wasn't it. They were given one methodology, one approach is it. Moses, I want you to make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole in the camp. Anyone that's bitten can look on the pole and they'll live. Suppose someone had said, but don't you understand I'm sick. I've just been bitten by the snake. I can't get out of bed. I tell you what, if you want to live, you'll somehow get to the door of the tent and find your way to look that pole. If you need somebody to carry you there, you'll do it. If you need a great deal of assistance to ensure you can make it to some place to get a view of that pole, you'll do it if you want to live. There was only one way. There was no plan B. There was no alternative. Don't you find that intriguing? Some might see that as too restrictive. Some might see that as a lack of understanding. Some might see that as too demanding. It still seems to me that if you want to live, you'll find a way to look at the pole. The text would indicate certainly that no doubt many found themselves in that predicament and we don't seemingly see any complaining about the necessity of finding a way to see the pole, to see the brass serpent upon it. On the slide, I've just asked you, isn't that an interesting parallel to our day? That some who perhaps are quick to say, but baptism is awfully inconvenient. i got to get wet. Why can't I just have some water sprinkled on me? Can't I just pray? Won't that be good enough? Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There's only one way. Doesn't it seem that a particular pattern might then go like this? I'll get to that water no matter how i got to get there. Because the Lord said that's the only way my sins can be forgiven. There is no other way. No amount of money that I might donate or give, no kind of, quote, sinner's prayer I might pray, none of that's going to be effective. Because the God of heaven has said there's one way. It seems like the children of Israel understood that. If only the human family could understand that today. That God's plan of salvation, sweet, beautiful, and pristinely pure, is His way. And there's one way. On the slide, I've asked you to notice, in Acts 15.9, we have a rather powerful presentation of this truth. That wonderful description that's presented like this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, in that first century era, the Jews had a very different history than Gentiles. The Jews were blessed with the oracles of God, Romans 3 verse 2. The Jews were richly blessed with a heritage of understanding and knowing the God of heaven. 
The Gentiles didn't have that blessedness. That history was not theirs. Wouldn't you have thought that the Gentiles might have said, Look, this plan of salvation business, that's fine for the Jews. What about me? Can I worship in a different place? In a different way? Can I be a part of a different kind of a church? Can I have a different plan of salvation? I'm not like them. And God said, No. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Paul would reaffirm that in Romans 12, didn't he? And stated with such dramatic power in that passage. You may notice in the second place, that text we noted earlier in Mark 16, as Jesus, with a nail-pierced hand, pointed to a world lost in sin and told His apostles, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And He didn't give one plan of salvation for Chinese people and a different one for Australian people and another one for Western European people. There was one plan of salvation predicated on the willful understanding of the God of heaven and as executed by our Master and Son of God. The mechanism of salvation is a sweet reminder that God's way is the right way, and my preferences have nothing to do with it. Lesson number four. In addition to this, isn't this the perfect time to make note of sometimes what is the foolishness of people? You'll notice on the slide we have then a description of the wonderful brazen serpent that Moses made lifted up in the camp, and no doubt many people were saved by it. And so at this point, you may ask, Preacher, where's the foolishness in this? Once they came to their senses and besought Moses to pray to God, how were they foolish? It comes later in the Old Testament. This same brazen serpent that Moses fabricated and had raised up here among the camp of Israel, interestingly, amazingly, and yet, tragically, this same serpent, this brazen serpent, reappears later in 2 Kings 18. And it's in a very different circumstance. And the outcome is so tragic. Let me summarize some of it. At this point, again, Moses made this brazen serpent. It was elevated there in the camp, and the people could look upon it, and if bitten by these poisonous snakes, they would not die. They could live. This brazen serpent, thus, was a very great giver of life, at least in this instance. But in 2 Kings 18, look, notice what the people of God had come to do with that brazen serpent. So they had kept it over a lot of years. They had, in fact, maintained it and no doubt had referenced it. But by the time we get to 2 Kings 18, they were worshiping it. It had become an idol. Just like you see some of the things in those surrounding nations... They now were bowing before it and worshiping it. Obviously, that was not the plan of God. In the Ten Commandments, God had told them in Commandment 2, don't ever make any image either of something on earth, something under the earth, something in the heavens above, and worship it. Jesus would say something like that, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The point was, over the course of the centuries between the time of Numbers 21 and the time of 2 Kings 18, the people had lapsed into idolatry and now they were worshiping the same brazen serpent that had one time been a source of deliverance from the poisonous snakes. 
that's man's foolishness. And isn't it true that still happens far too often? To look upon something that God has given, and over the course of time, other ideas be referenced with respect to it, other things considering it, and ultimately it turns into something that's not at all what God originally intended. That certainly was true here. I would ask you to notice that interestingly enough, we find that Hezekiah actually came to the point where he destroyed this in Second Kings because he recognized that people were worshiping it instead of the God who had commanded its fabrication. Doesn't that remind you a bit about Romans chapter 1 when men can often worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever on men? Romans 1.25. Paul said that was a behavior typical of that day. Sometimes, of course, it can still be so. Isn't it true that there still are occasions when individuals can look upon something that God organized in holiness and organized with perfection and purity, and men have twisted it, perverted it, and turned it into something so different? To some extent, you can think about the matters of denominationalism and often the characteristics of the church. When things concerning the matters of the New Testament have been twisted and taken to mean things that clearly they were not intended to mean. How cautious must we be then to realize and not allow what we appreciate in directness and in the things of God now to become something that will be an element in sin sometime later. Man's foolishness only takes us to the fifth and final lesson. And it is this one. We see in this episode of Numbers 21 a dramatic reflection of and a tremendous truth concerning Jesus the Christ. I don't say that because it's my idea. I say it because the Lord said it. Would you turn with me to John chapter 3? In the Gospel according to John, we find the Lord Himself making reference to this event, and He has this comment to make. This was the same chapter, of course, in which Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. It's the same chapter that has within it, arguably, the single most well-known verse in all of the New Testament. And yet, it's in that very context that we read this, beginning in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Can you hear the words of the Master ring in reference back to the events of Numbers 21? Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, note the comparison, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was drawing a comparison between Moses lifting up the serpent and Him, the Lord's being lifted up on a cross. And in the same way, he would be quick to say that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Just as surely as those that looked upon the brazen serpent were allowed to live, the snake bite didn't kill them, so too those that look on the elevated Savior, they too will have everlasting life. The parallel is beautiful. 
and rather remarkable. And one more time, our knowledge of the Old Testament sheds a great deal of light on the placement of this passage and the conclusion that the Master has drawn. And so on that particular slide, I've asked you to notice a few parallels between the two. First of all, you'll notice that snakebite was the problem in Numbers 21. Venomous snakebite, poisonous snakebite. The bite you and I have today spiritually is just as deadly. Isaiah 59 reminds us, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Do we not read in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. Sin will inevitably and invariably bring death. You see, our serpent's bite, we learned earlier tonight about the devil as the serpent. Our serpent's bite is just as deadly as theirs was, and arguably many times worse. And yet, you and I appreciate here that they were blessed with the opportunity of salvation. They could look on the brazen serpent. You and I, of course, can look to the Master. That's what Jesus said. Those that believe on Him are able to enjoy everlasting life. But what else might we observe as similarities? Well, you'll notice back in that Numbers 21 passage that those who complied with what was commanded by God through Moses, they enjoyed that deliverance to which we've referred tonight. Today, those who comply with what God through the Son has delivered and commanded, they too will enjoy, of course, the deliverance from the poisonous bite of the serpent. You and I know that means obedience to the gospel. Complying with what the Master has commanded. Just as we noted earlier tonight, they needed to find means to look upon that brazen serpent on the pole. Whatever it took to get to a place to view it, that's what was required. Our interest, our requirement, our essential need to do that which the Master has commanded. Nothing else in life is more important than that. For isn't it still true that the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments? Ecclesiastes 12, 13. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, it takes us back to the scene of the comparison that Jesus Himself made. His usage, you see, says it like this, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus stated that as a priority, as a requirement. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus had to die on a cross. It wouldn't have been right if He had been killed with a sword. It wouldn't have been right if He had, in essence, been killed during the course of the scourging that took place right before His crucifixion. He had to be lifted up to be the parallel to the event that we've seen here. Didn't Jesus say it like this in John 12, 32? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He will issue an invitation, and that He has, to invite one and all to come to the power and the opportunity offered through the one who is lifted up, and to those who look upon Him. He is able to thus shed forth before them that blessedness of harmony with God and salvation 
deliverance from that poisonous bite of sin. That slide perhaps leads us to only one very small set of final statements. What would be your reaction in mind to someone in the ancient camp of Israel who had been bitten by one of those snakes, but he refused to look upon the brazen serpent? Maybe under the illusion, I'm healthy and I'm strong. This will pass. I'll be okay. Only to die, perhaps not many hours later, maybe even minutes later. Wouldn't we classify such a person as very short-sighted? Why not take advantage of the remedy when it seems so readily available? And yet, can you and I not be guilty of something rather similar today? Maybe there's something in your life or mine that needs to change, and we know it. We've read enough of the Word of God to appreciate it. We know this isn't the way things should continue. And yet, maybe with passing moments and even days, I'll get around to it sometime. I'll get to it at some point. I'm kind of busy at the moment. There will be a more opportune time later. Doesn't that sound a bit like the Kings in the book of Acts? When I have a more convenient season, I'll call for thee. What if the more convenient season never comes? To imagine for all of eternity knowing I had immediate access to the remedy and I chose not to avail myself of it. I can hardly imagine how all of eternity would seem when one will have that memory. One will have that acknowledgement and know for a surety what could have been the case and what is then not reality. Tonight, there might be someone in this assembly who maybe again has learned some reminders or perhaps been refreshed by some of these recollections of the brazen serpent. At the very least, can we not say that in the passage before us, the very next verse, I stopped at verse 15, of course, but verse 16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was lifted up. And He offers eternal life. Tonight, if there's anyone in this place and time who would need to respond publicly, we want you to know that we would be excited to assist and help in however way we might do it. But always it's on the terms which the Lord has specified. If you need to obey the gospel, it requires initially that you believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His matchless name as the Messiah and be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. And if we could assist you tonight, what a glorious day for you would be. If you have known the sweetness of that way of life, and you are in fact lovingly looking upon the pole time and again to appreciate the continual cleansing available to you from the blood of Christ, but maybe over time you've stopped doing that. You've maybe begun to look inward, or you have perhaps looked in other locations. There's to be no help found there. Psalm 118 verse 8. Tonight, if we could assist you by again acknowledging your repentance and confessing those errors, we'd be happy to pray tonight and to again sweetly observe how God has reinstated you to a place of faithfulness. This evening, if we could be of some assistance, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. Won't you come while we stand and sing?